Is that Bill Pullman from Independence Day? Yes. No, it's not. It's not. Okay. Most right. definitely not. I know Bill Pullman, like the back of my head. How do you know the back of your head? Yeah, did you because see your head? I know Bill Pullman movies. Oh, and really? the back of your is like the back of your hand. If you know the back of your head, you've got supernatural powers. I don't. I just call my Uber. So, so. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 121, our second podcast back from the break. Today, we are going to be talking about David Lynch's Lost Highway from 1997, which he co-wrote with Barry Gifford, who wrote Wild at Heart. And we're going to be talking about transitional movies in the sense that sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But in a director's work, there is often a movie where you're like, oh, that movie really bridges one phase to another. An example would be Raiders for Spielberg. Raiders of the Lost Ark is clearly the first movie of his middle period. Because when you look at Duel, Sugarland, Jaws, and Close Encounters in 1941, they all feel of a, a piece. And then Raiders, he's definitely trying to make movies on budget, on schedule. Uh, he's much more economical. Uh, and it's a different kind of filmmaker. Uh, with Scorsese, I think for a lot of people, everybody felt that Bringing Out the Dead was a movie that marked some kind of new phase. And really, it was his daughter was born. I actually had put together that Bringing Out the Dead, Gangs of New York, and The Aviator, which are actually three that I'm not huge on, although they're parts of gangs that I love, that was when his daughter was young. And then as she got to be an adult, and you notice this with George Miller too, uh, they sort of were able to come back to filmmaking full force. Like George Miller was making Happy Feet and Babe when his kids were young. And then I guess the moment his kids went to college, he was like, Fury Road, baby. Babe's really good, though. Oh, totally. Happy Feet. No, I'm not knocking Babe 2, Pig in the City, as a near-death experience. I'm not <laughs> knocking any of those. They're, it's like a different kind of movie. So anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about Lost Highway and transitional movies. And then, of course, the transition for Lynch is moving into Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, Twin Peaks, The Return, which are pretty spaced out. But we will, we will talk about why Lost Highway may be a transitional film. You can also repudiate that first frame we have returning with us secret movie club team member alex olivier let's give it up for alex thank you for being here alex oh thank you for having me this is great i always love this alex olivier our head projectionist he just was the uh, loader and all around i mean he did everything in pre-production on the afterworld game he was the first person i brought on to the movie after the produce my producing partner amy taylor and alex did everything from getting the club ready to be a movie set to uh, loading the 35 millimeter film to keeping the camera reports to help being like a basically a set dresser i mean you did it all so thank you oh yeah well, thank you that was a uh, you know Talk about fun experiences or just uh, unforgettable experiences. That was one for sure. So who is with us today? Well, and then it's just also me, Connell Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. There's just three of us today. Daniel's at jury duty and Edwin refused. So, so <laughs> I think we have a little audio of Edwin. We'll play. We will. Oh, and if you hear noise during this podcast, we're uh, renovating uh, our theater and uh, we are putting up draperies and masking for the, the movie screen. So now when you see a 133 movie or a 235 movie, it will be masked so you don't see any white and it'll have nice curtains. So there you go. And I am Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. As always, please find out about everything we're doing. Our October to December schedule is up at secretmovieclub.com. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com when you hear this podcast. For tonight, uh, please join us at the Million Dollar Theater. We 
actually are showing Richard Pryor's Live at the Sunset Strip. You know, he made a number of stand-up comedy concert films, in some ways pioneered the concert film, uh, which we can talk about. In my opinion, and Richard Pryor is the GOAT. Uh, he is the GOAT stand-up comic. That is not like a minority or unique opinion. Most people, when you ask them, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Kevin Hart, anybody, you know, white or black or whatever race they are, if they're in stand-up comedy, they're going to tell you the GOAT was Richard Pryor. And the, it, Richard Pryor's talent seemed to be weaving a very painful personal life. He was actually, his mother worked in a brothel. His grandmother was the madame. His father was abusive uh, and was a pimp. Uh, Richard Pryor was an alcoholic, was on and off drugs, and he was a very angry person for very understandable reasons. He was very honest about all that. He was bisexual. Uh, supposedly, he had a very famous affair with Marlon Brando. I can't confirm that, so I don't want to be like, you know, this is secondhand stuff, but he was even honest about that. There's a famous roast of Richard Pryor where he owns his bisexuality in the mid-70s. We're going to have his widow, Jennifer Pryor, who's in the movie. You see her at the beginning of the film. She's going to talk ahead of the movie and we are currently putting together a stand-up comedian panel if we're not able to get amazing people we're not necessarily going to do it but the idea is after the movie if we can get some great stand-up comedians we want them to talk about Richard Pryor and his legacy because in my opinion all these art forms inform cinema and then Saturday we're back at the Million Dollar Theater doing our rescheduled Mike Mignola event uh, we are going to show Frankenstein the original James Whale Frankenstein on 35mm a movie I love even though Bride of Frankenstein is is the best and uh, we're showing that Universal's giving us a 35 millimeter print and then we're showing a documentary on Mike Mignola who is the creator of Hellboy a very famous comic book artist he's done a lot of comic books for Dark Horse um, Mr. Mignola will be there with the documentarians we're all going to be on stage doing a Q&A so if you want to ask about how you write graphic novels how you get into the field uh, what Mr. Mignola had to do at midnight Man, uh, we're packing it in. We're back here at the Secret Movie Club Theater doing Vampire Hunter D and Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. I think I did that because they're both 90-minute movies and they're anime, and I can come back and crank open a beer and watch them with you. I love Vampire Hunter D. If you've never seen it, it's one of my favorite animes of all time. It's like sci-fi, horror, erotic, folktale. I don't even know how to explain it, but pretty singular and amazing. On Wednesday, we have The Resistance back, the improv comedy troupe The Resistance. They're going to do an hour live set, probably a horror movie, live improv. And then we think we're showing an Italian horror movie called Patrick Still Lives, which is very infamous for if you talk about Sam Raimi's Evil Dead tree scene, I think the filmmakers of Patrick Still Lives watched that and tried to one-up it with a fire poker scene. But supposedly Patrick Still Lives is so ridiculous that it's a very famous ridiculous Italian horror movie. But I have just been informed that I'm, there might be some rights issues on that. So if it's not Patrick Still Lives, it'll be something from Harry Guerrero. We'll tell you. But the resistance will be live improving some Italian thing. We turn the volume down on and totally redoing it. On Thursday, something I really encourage you to see. We've talked about it before. Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, starring Matt Dillon, Uma Thurman, Riley Keough. Pretty amazing cast. And I am a big fan. I was not looking forward to seeing it because I thought it was going to be very unsavory because it is about the memories of a serial killer. It really turns out to be an autobiography about Lars von Trier himself and his hangups and his feelings about the current moment. It's also very funny. The last act of the movie, von Trier, he's done it before, but he again swings for the fences. He, he has not lost his ambition in trying to go somewhere that movies ostensibly can't go. 
Today we're talking about Lost Highway, David Lynch's uh, 1997 Lost Highway, often described as a neo-noir. It stars Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, Robert Blake, among other people, uh, you know, uh, Robert Loja, Jack Nance, Richard Pryor, actually Richard Pryor's last movie, yeah. Gary Busey, uh, Joanna. Also Robert Blake's last movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get into that as well. Edwin it was stating, aside from the fact he hasn't seen it, his reasons for not seeing it, and, and they have to do with Robert Blake and totally legitimate. But the movie uh, has a fascinating structure. David Lynch described it as a psychogenic fugue, I think. And what he meant was he was talking about the musical form. A fugue introduces a theme, totally leaves the theme, and then returns to the theme at the end. It kind of ends at the beginning. You could not get a better description of Lost Highway, uh, which is definitely fits that description without giving any, although we are going to have spoilers. So at this point, if you want to watch Lost Highway, just stop the podcast and watch it. But it basically deals with Sax Jazz musician uh, Bill Pullman yet another white jazz musician <laughs> like La La Land but nevertheless that's neither here nor there and there were plenty of great white jazz musicians just always funny that in movies they seem to be white when in fact the majority of them were black and it was African Americans who created the genre nevertheless and I love Lynch that's not a knock on Lynch Fred a jazz musician and his wife Renee are clearly in a troubled marriage Fred is uh, very suspicious of his wife who no longer comes to his gigs when they do have sex it's clearly very humiliating for Fred. He doesn't seem to really be pleasing Renee. They start to receive these weird tapes that end up on their doorstep. And the tapes are videotapes of their home, then inside the home, then of them sleeping. And ultimately, Fred gets a tape that shows him murdering Renee. And he goes, in typical Lynch style, he goes to death row. And while in death row, for no explainable reason, he gets headaches. And then something happens and he becomes Balthazar Getty, who is Pete and uh, they have to let him go because he's not Fred. Pete goes home and he's a mechanic and he uh, fixes up cars for a gangster, a very terrifying gangster named uh, Mr. Eddie. And Mr. Eddie has a gorgeous girlfriend named Alice, also played by Patricia Arquette, who is a blonde where Renee was a brunette. Alice comes on to Pete really strong. They have an immediate sexual attraction. Whereas Fred and Renee's sex life was uh, mediocre is not even the word. Pete and Alice's sex life is in overdrive. They can't get enough of each other. But then suddenly Alice Alice asks Pete to commit a crime in true noir fashion. Uh, Mr. Eddie finds out the affair might be happening. Suddenly, your question about what's going on with Patricia Arquette playing both parts, what happened to Bill Pullman, all of that gets resolved when they go to the desert. And the final thing is there's another character named the Mystery Man, played by Robert Blake, who shows up and in the first half of the movie tells uh, Bill Pullman that he's inside their house. A key line, I think. And then he says, uh, you invited me. And then this Mystery Man shows up again in Pete's storyline. David Lynch made it uh, in 1997 with his Twin Peaks crew. Peter Deming was the DP. Uh, Julie, I'm, I'm sorry, Mary Sweeney, who was his wife for uh, 10 years. They have a son, Riley, who I got to meet, actually. Mary Sweeney was an assistant editor on Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. She went on to become an editor on the second season of Twin Peaks. And I believe, I, you know, I didn't ask her. I stayed away from the personal questions. But at some point, David Lynch and Mary Sweeney really hit it off. And she ended up editing and producing Twin Peaks. Peaks Fire Walk With Me, The Straight Story, uh, Lost Highway, 
And then finally, a Mulholland Drive was the last thing that they did together. And then they divorced. And But she spoke very highly of him. She was an utter pro. There was absolutely no passive aggressive, nothing. She talked about him in his process. And I was very, you know, and she's an artist. Mary Sweeney's an artist herself. And I was very impressed with her, with how the interview went. Because we only very lightly touched on the fact that they had been married. There's so much to like about Lost Highway. It's almost like one of Lynch's unheralded movies, just because it takes sort of a backseat to Mulholland Drive or Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks. But in my opinion, it's just as every bit as good. <laughs> All I have to really do to sell someone, I think, on this movie is just tell them that it's a, like a, almost a David Lynch kind of a horror story that ends up being a noir, but is still a disturbing nightmare. And if you're a Lynch fan, that should be enough to make you want to watch it. When I first watched it, I thought of it kind of as like the proto cachet the michael haneke film oh yeah for sure because of the videotape device yeah just it's like the same premise of this couple getting sent these anonymous menacing videotapes we also were framing this conversation around the transition from one era to another and i absolutely see the connection between lost highway and mulholland drive for several reasons you know one there's the kind of projected personalities on these characters who may or may not be real the characters are more representative of an emotion rather than necessarily a literal person themselves. There's even a scene in uh, Lost Highway that takes place on Mulholland Drive. But I also kind of think of Lost Highway as a companion piece to Blue Velvet <laughs> in a weird way, because Blue Velvet is Lynch's take on Rear Window and the voyeuristic, I guess, elements of Rear Window. And I've always seen Lost Highway as Lynch's take on Vertigo and the like obsession with this woman who he doesn't really know and may you know have a double which one is the real one it's kind of up to you to determine in that sense i kind of lump lost highway and blue velvet together and i love them all you know for sure it's just funny that people do often think of this i guess just because of where it's placed in the timeline of lynch's career as the uh, like segue to Mulholland Drive, when I think this is something that's kind of been in his career before. The Vertigo thing I hadn't put together until recently. Many of Lynch's movies, he's the one of the few people where I actually, I like it. You can see what the reference was or what the influence was, but he makes it completely his own thing. You know, like Twin Peaks, actually, Laura comes from an Otto Preminger movie, Laura, about a woman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, murder mystery. Mulholland Drive is Sunset Boulevard. And he's been very open about how Sunset at Boulevard, like it really rocked his world. Dune is Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Elephant Man was Mary Poppins. I think everyone sees that. <laughs> well, I was going to say the transition thing. It's interesting. Mary Sweeney actually brought something up. This movie did transition David in the sense that this was the last movie of David's that was edited on film, starting with their next film, The Straight Story, and continuing to Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, presumably, and Twin Peaks Return. It's all been digital editing. I like the movie. I kind of like all of his movies. It's not one of my favorites. I think the first half is stronger. There's like a long section towards the back where it's just Getty Balthazar. Balthazar Getty. Balthazar Getty. <laughs> Batty, Batty Gelfazer getting laid for a long stretch of time, and I got a little sleepy <laughs> during, during some of those sections. I think one thing that's missing for me is it's like I think a lot of the stuff I love from Lynch is funnier than this. Like I think Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks and The Straight Story are all a lot funnier in their own ways, and this I find to be a little more. Um, it is more leaning just into the darkness, but. I love analog video stuff. It's so spooky. The tapes that they get 
It's like a David Lynch made a creepy pasta before creepy pasta was a thing. <laughs> what is creepy pasta? Creepy pasta is like a uh, I don't know if if I could define it exactly, but it's essentially just a type of storytelling online. It's derived from copy pasta, which is when people like there's little stories and stuff people will copy and paste like on horrible places like 4chan and other less horrible places creepypasta was like a spooky version of this and so there's a lot of creepypasta about like slender man like it's a very internet age thing and the idea of getting videotapes of your front of your house or whatever it's spooky it's weird <laughs> there's actually a thing that happened a couple of years ago where a guy there was some city where a guy was like leaving, not tapes, but he left just like full TVs on people's doors every night <laughs> for a while. I don't remember what the resolution to that was. Also, I love the scene where Robert Loggia freaks out and beats a guy up because he was tailgating for tailgating him. Because to be honest, I get it. No, I did. The funny thing is you totally feel like uh, Lynch has talked about how he writes scripts, which he learned at AFI from Frank Danielle, which was he'll make all these flashcards and then he'll pick the 70, 70 likes. And then that's his movie. And you feel like one of the flashcards was beats up tailgater. <laughs> and he was like, this is the one it goes in. And you must like Lynch hates it. We also, we, I don't know if we mentioned Gary Beasley's in this. And whenever I see Mr. Beasley, I always think about the thing he said about fear. It's uh, false expectations appearing real. Think about Thank that. Thank you, Gary Busey. You mentioned at the show that uh, Lynch talked about how this was him sort of trying to exercise his thoughts about OJ and the OJ trial, which I'm not going to explain. If you don't know what it is, look it up. Oh, wait, we can't wait. Just let me do it then. You don't have to do it. But uh, for anybody, because this is 30 years ago now. Uh, so OJ Simpson was a very famous, beloved football player, a star loved by everybody in the country, you know, and sort of a similar story as, say, Bill Cosby, where he was looked at as incredibly wholesome. And what ended up happening was that his wife and her boyfriend were brutally stabbed and killed in Brentwood. And all evidence to this day points to the fact that OJ did it, that he killed them. And then there was a very famous chase on the freeway with his best friend where OJ was in the back of the truck and they had to talk them down. And But he was eventually acquitted of the murder. But it was a, a murder trial that still captures the imagination of America for a whole bunch of reasons that are much more complicated than just somebody getting away with killing his wife. There are, there are race elements in this that many African-American artists have discussed, which is that after 300 or 400 years of watching white people literally get away with murder, literally get away, like own the justice system, not have to pay for its treatment of anybody. OJ, whether or not he did it, was somehow able to get exonerated. And to see white people go crazy about it was like one of the first times that a lot of black people said they felt that white people understood how they felt. It's a very layered thing that's very hard to get into, especially I'm a white guy, so I'm not the one to talk about it. I will say this about the OJ trial. It also was sort of the first information age we're in this kind of like trial of the century thing and we've seen a few of these since then his was especially huge because it kind of started this the sort of era of true crime we're in i guess you could say in a weird way it's he's also just so huge because he was nordberg you know oh yeah from naked gun <laughs> you know something nordberg's gonna do that but it's doubly weird when again post this movie robert blake one of the main stars of the movie then is involved in the murder of his wife. Very strange. It is, and I, I'm not as versed on the facts of the Robert Blake case, but I do think that something that's important is Robert Blake, who plays the mystery man, and for people who may or may not know him, 
one of his most famous roles is in an amazing adaptation of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, where he also plays a murderer, interestingly. And he gives a tremendous performance in that. And, and Robert Blake was an actor for 30, 40 years, 50 years maybe even, the 60s to this movie, which was 1997 at least. So sometime after this, his wife was killed outside a restaurant, I believe. It was traced back that Blake may have hired some kind of mafia figure to do a hit on his wife. And again, I have to look into it. I, I may even be getting those details wrong. But nevertheless, for a movie about a guy who kills his wife and doesn't want to deal with the fact that he killed his wife, there is an actor in the movie who killed his wife and then protested his innocence. So there's a very uncanny resonance. And uh, another note, too, this was Jack Nance's last movie with Lynch. Um, Nance was killed. Actually, it's weird, all the bad juju surrounding this movie, now that I think about it. Do we actually know? I thought Jack Nance just disappeared. Oh, no. No, no, he was killed. Beat up, I think, by some homeless guys. And then maybe like... With pipes. Yeah, a day later, he had like a huge headache and went to sleep and never woke up something like that uh, it was horrible i guess nance mouthed off to some guys outside his apartment building and so jack nance who many of you know as henry from Eraserhead, pete from twin peaks he was in blue velvet wild at heart he had been i mean lynch made sure that he was in almost every movie he did as a thank he was in dune i think he was an elephant man jack nance gave four years of his life to Eraserhead, and i think to david lynch's credit uh, one of the reasons i respect him all those people who busted their butts on Eraserhead, Catherine cole would reappear as the log lady. David Lynch never forgot the people that gave their lives to... Catherine Coulson gave David Lynch her tip money to make that movie from waitressing. So it's a whole thing. So me on Lost... Uh, on Lo Yeah, Lost Highway. You know, it's funny. It's a movie that's grown on me. My personal favorite Lynch's are Eraserhead, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Twin Peaks The TV Show, Mulholland Drive, and Twin Peaks The Return. I, I think those are my favorites. And then... I'm a huge fan of Blue Velvet, of course, but it, it's always funny for me. It's like how I feel about Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. I love Blue Velvet. I'll watch Blue Velvet anytime. I watch Taxi Driver anytime. I think they're both key movies of, of their eras. But for some reason, whatever. My jam with David Lynch is uh, Fire Walk With Me, Eraserhead. Really, Fire Walk With Me is in my top 35, and I'm obsessed. But I love Lynch as a filmmaker. Lost Highway, I always thought was a little too cynical. And this was the way I felt when I was younger. I thought it was a little too cynical. Maybe it leaned a little too into the cool, which has always been an aspect of Lynch's work, um, has always been this 50s retro unsettling cool thing. I thought maybe Lost High was a little too 50s retro cool, uh, maybe a little too cynical for my tastes, but every time I see it, I enjoy it. Every time I see it, I'm actually always impressed with, I think it's central thesis. And this is my interpretation. Lynch would, of course, be like, well, that's great. That's what you think. And, uh, you know, other people would, would have their own. But I've always read the movie as a guy who can't deal in his head that he is a murderer and sexually inadequate. And so he creates a completely different existence in his head while he's on death row that he is this teenager. Every woman wants him. He pleases every woman. They fight over him. But the way that your brain works is the brain won't let you stay in that fantasy world. And eventually all the things that 
troubled him in his real life crash in on the fantasy that he's created. So the Patricia Arquette character becomes less enamored with him, wants him to do a crime. You suddenly realize she's sort of playing him. He gets played. The mystery man shows up again. And I think that whole idea of like the mystery man saying, you let me in, is that idea of people who let in the worst of our nature. And I think David Lynch's movies always deal with, and this is something I agree with, we have a, a light side and a shadow side, this very Jungian. And some people, they work to stay in the light or they try to stay moral and ethical. You know, we all have, I, mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I know I have petty thoughts and angry thoughts and I have violence in me and I have things that I don't like and I hate. But I know also that I'm a human and I'm an animal and that these things are lizard brain. And I just try to expiate that stuff in my art, which I I would wager Lynch does. That's sort of like how Lynch expiates his dark side. And I try to expiate my dark side in my writing and in my art. And I try to exercise and I try not to take it out on people. But when when I lose it, or the bad comes out, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to ask forgiveness or to try to right the wrong or admit I was wrong. Or, And that's, to me, the movie is about that to an extreme. And I think what's interesting is that you can see by the end of the movie, Balthazar Getty can't stay Balthazar Getty. He becomes Bill Pullman again. And you, you see him kind of going between the two. And, and I think you see somebody who can't uh, square. If you say Eraserhead was about Lynch dealing with being a father, or you said that Twin Peaks was this amazing metaphor about abuse. I think that Lost Highway is this metaphor about how people try to create a fantasy version of themselves, the version they want to believe, but the real version doesn't go away. Who you really are is who you really are. And so I actually find the movie to be more and more interesting and profound as I get older. You know, David Lynch is an artist in so many mediums, not just film, but the guy's a musician, he's released albums, he's a painter. I mean, you could even call all his weather reports performance art. So I guess, apropos of nothing, when someone asks me what my favorite David Lynch movie is, even though I like Twin Peaks more, I will always say Mulholland Drive, because I mean, even though it's a movie, I consider Fire Walk With Me just part of just Twin Peaks as a work of art, I and not like a movie that I would watch if I hadn't just watched the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. So even though Twin Peaks is my favorite thing David Lynch has ever done, I still say Mulholland Drive is my favorite Lynch movie. I agree. I actually agree. You mirror completely the same on that. Nice. You know, Mary Sweetie was talking about how Lynch edited, and I was surprised. She said that Lynch would come in, and she said, you know, the footage clearly showed a way to be assembled, like any good director would would do. It's not like he just shot from every angle, and Mary Sweeney was left to figure it out. She said David wrote the script. She said he shot the script, which I thought was actually very insightful. I think sometimes people, erroneously, in my opinion, will say that, oh, Lynch makes it up as he goes along, or he doesn't know what he's doing, or... And she said, no, no, no. And I knew this, too. I've always known this, that Lynch writes a very thorough script. He then shoots the script. There are no surprises in his shooting. And then the footage comes back and she assembles it fat. So she gets his preferred takes. And then she said he'll come in and they'll both sit there. And and she said, and I also suspected this. I was glad to hear her say that. She said Lynch is totally a pro. You know, he comes in and he says, oh, well, that's not working. That shot's not working. This cut's not working. They were usually in sync on it. And he would say, could you do this? Try this, try this. But then she'd say he'd go out and build some furniture or he'd go out, paint a painting, or he'd go out and do like record an album. And he would only come in when she had another cut. So he actually, she said he didn't sit over her shoulder, which is actually something that Spielberg does and Scorsese do. That's my understanding is that they're in the editing room for every single cut has been my understanding for the most Scorsese's 
specifically that Thelma Schoonmaker creates this like assembly. I've heard it's gnarly because Scorsese started as an editor. I've heard that aside from maybe the stuff that clearly is unusable, she creates an assembly of every single thing they shot. And then Scorsese sits down with her and goes through all of it. And then they start to cut. I don't know if that's true, but I know that Scorsese, because he has like Turner Classic movies on while they edit, I've heard as well. <laughs> so I, he's like there and he's like, nah, 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 and then he watches some Turner Classic movies. Oh, nah, 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 and then they like, nah, nah, and then it goes back and it like is feeding him. You can take the Marty out of the cocaine, but you can't take the cocaine out of the Marty. <laughs> and I know he, and I get it. I couldn't really see myself not in the editing room. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm not going to talk out of my ass, but I love editing too. I, I love the physical act of discovering the cut and stuff but it was interesting so lynch is very heavily involved in the editing but i actually think to his credit and he's talked about this he gave his collaborators space and then he'd go away and he'd come back see what they did and, and go from there i have to go to work so All right, that's and good. i'm already you didn't, you didn't watch Lost super Highway late anyway. yeah because i don't care for Lost highway i despise that movie you haven't even seen it I, there's a good reason why i hate robert blake and i just don't like that movie guy's a, a murderer and i am not watching a murderer's movie what about and, uh, other what about other people who murdered and continue to be in movies. You just don't know that they murdered. A lot of the old, not a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but a few of your favorite actors from the uh, 60s and 70s were, had murdered. God damn it, Craig. Oh, I'm, I'm just, no, no, listen. I, by the way, Edwin, 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 maybe we should keep this in. I really do take your point. Robert Blake ostensibly hired a killer, to, a hitman to kill his wife. And that's, that's morally repugnant. So you're absolutely right, Edwin. You have every right not to watch a movie uh, because of that. So I, I respect your your point of view. But I would say that it's also important to bear in mind that at the time the movie was made, nobody involved in the making of the movie knew that. And it would be unfair to take away Patricia Arquette's amazing performance, Bill Pullman's amazing yeah. performance, David Lynch's amazing, I mean, Peter Deming's amazing cinematography, Mary Sweeney's amazing editing. They had nothing to do with Robert Blake. So, you know, it's sort of like stripping the team of their victories because, you know, O.J. Simpson was their, you know, wide receiver. I guess you got a point. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> if you showed uh, the money train, that would have been great because he gets knocked in the face, which is awesome. I uh, just wanted to watch a different one of his. Lost Highway may in some ways mark the end of the Blue Velvet Wild at Heart Fire Walk With Me run. And it sort of sets up the straight story, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, Twin Peaks, like his later period. Twin Peaks, The Return, probably is the first movie of his late period. And I know he's just done something that they're still not talking about that we're all going to see. Do you guys know about this thing? Wisteria? Yeah, he had, no one knows what it's about. They just know the fake title is Wisteria. So we're about to see the new David Lynch joint, which is, I'm so excited. But I would probably say his late period starts either with Inland Empire or The Return. So you both had pointed out how kind of dark and cynical and negative Lost Highway is. And it absolutely is. I agree. But it's funny that it's right beside in his timeline, The Straight Story, which is one of the sweetest, happiest films, not only that he's ever done, but just that ever <laughs> most any filmmaker has ever done. Yeah. A Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A David Lynch Disney film, The Straight Story. It's a great, amazing movie that everyone should watch. I love it. It's, it's up there for me. <laughs> yeah, but it's crazy to see those movies side by side in the timeline of Lynch's career because he really was at, I guess, a yin and a yang in his artistic life at that point. Uh, and it's clearly visible. And well, then it's kind of interesting because then Mulholland Drive is obviously a much darker film than Straight Story. But unlike Lost Highway, which feels more cynical, 
Mulholland Drive is more tragic, I think. Totally. Mary Sweeney was talking about that. She and I were talking about outside in the lobby that actually most of his movies have redemption in them. If you, you, you're open to that kind of thing, even Eraserhead has a kind of redemptive ending or some kind of transcendent ending. But Lost Highway does not. And I think that Mulholland Drive is bleak, but I agree with what you're saying. There's something sad about it, profoundly sad about, and you feel in the best sense as a tragedy, a sense of loss for the character and where her life ends up. Whereas Lost Highway you feel somebody stuck in a, like a psychological uh, Mobius strip or something. I don't know how to explain it. Even, you know, I've said this, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is my favorite Lynch. It's one of my favorite films of all time. But ultimately, if you watch that film, the ending of it is, she. and I'll get a little teary because I'm very prone to this stuff, but Laura Palmer's, the horrors she endures, she's, uh, you know, redeemed by God in the end. You know, if you're open to that, you know, and literally an angel appears and Laura Palmer is looking at an angel at the end of that film with Dale Cooper. So there's some kind of transcendent release for her, but not so in Lost Highway, which is very interesting. He has a transcendent release, but it's more like looking into the pit of despair. <laughs> He's turning into like a horrible monster man. I'll talk about my favorite director because I realize this would be good to bring up Mr. Sam Raimi because I would argue that Raimi has three eras. His Evil Dead movies all belong to his first era. Those first two Evil Dead movies are two of my favorites. But my other four favorite movies of his are the movies I would sit upon, I would place on the like dividing lines of his eras. The first one is The Quick and the Dead and A Simple Plan. The Quick and the Dead being his mid-90s just action-adventure western. It's just super, like, stylized. The story's pretty thin, but it's pretty fun because you've got, like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Very Young and Gene Hackman just kind of hamming it up and Raimi just fully committing to doing all the crazy stuff. But it, I think the reception was kind of muted, and so he completely pulled back for A Simple Plan. His next film which style-wise is probably his maybe his most restrained film. But narratively, you can kind of see in it what narratively is Sam's, like, obsessions, which are this sort of fatalistic, like, basically just somebody going through the worst possible stuff you could imagine and usually still losing, but sometimes winning. And I, I think he got, like, kind of self-conscious about his style there. And those next couple movies, he's kind of restrained. And then I think the first two Spider-Mans is the switchover because I think the first Spider-Man did so well. And the first Spider-Man is also sort of restrained. It's more um, Spielbergian in its action scenes where it's very captured well and it's all very clear, but it's not as sort of hyper style the way that you think of Sam Raimi. And then with Spider-Man 2, I think he sort of maybe got a confidence back. This is me psychoanalyzing the quick and the dead thing he's been on the record for. But this is me psychoanalyzing him. I think he's able to like modulate it more. And so uh, he knows when to do that kind of stuff. He's not doing, you know, the quick and the dead or the first two evil dead movies where the entire movie is at, you know, a 10. But he's also not doing, you know, a simple plan where he's pulled back all the way. He's sort of switching it around. Simple Plan is one of my favorite Raimi movies. I actually have it down to do ASAP. One of my favorite Sam Raimi trademark sequences is in Spider-Man 2 when Doc Ock becomes Doc Ock and all those arms. I remember being in the theater. I was like, what is this movie rated? Because I loved it, but it was horrifying to me. You totally see it and stuff like that because that's like the one scene in that movie where he dials it all the way up and then the rest of the movie, he's sort of modulating a little more towards the middle depending on the sequence. 
And, you know, he did the same thing with the new uh, Doctor Strange movie, which has scenes early on that would fit in any of these other MCU movies. And then later (laughs) points in the movie, he's doing like these weird effect shots of people like reacting to like a scary monster character on the other side of a door. And it's like this slow-mo thing. The sound cuts out to just like a drip sound and the classic Evil Dead like manipulation of sound and uh, audio. His career is fascinating because he has so many shaggy dog movies that you're like, oh, right, Sam Raimi did that. The Gift, the Cape Blanchett movie, or For the Love of the Game, the Kevin Costner movie. That's that's the one I haven't seen. I want to see it. I do, too. Because I'll see any Sam Raimi thing. I'm like, let's see what he does with a baseball movie. F it. I'm, like, holding on to it as, like, I'm going to watch it on my deathbed. <laughs> Can I hold your hand? <laughs> I'm going to watch it when I appreciate baseball and that kind of stuff more. When I get older, I guess. I don't know. There was just one line in the trailer that made me cringe. I think it would still make me cringe. It has nothing to do with Sam Raimi. But it was like Kevin Costner holding Kelly Lynch's hand or whoever the lead is at, a, at like a restaurant. And he's like, how do you like to be kissed? And I was like, <laughs> what? The film I was going to talk about regarding transitions from one era of a director to another is The Tree of Life. Great call. Total transition movie. Yeah, I think it's, it's almost even evident just from name dropping the movie and not elaborating it. Uh, on it, but I will anyway. So, you know, Craig, I know you often talk about Coppola's run in the 70s as one of the most untouchable runs by any director, but I think you could, uh, uh, equally good of a run, you can call Terrence Malick's From Badlands to the New World is pretty flawless. Agreed. Untouchable run. Then he follows the New World with The Tree of Life, which, don't get me wrong, it's a movie that I like a lot, but you can definitely see the flaws in it. And I think those flaws are things that are emphasized or heightened in the films that would succeed Tree of Life. For example, he tends to get a little indulgent in the Tree of Life in areas that he probably doesn't need to. I think he just enjoys it. It kind of detracts from the movie in the sense that it makes it a little rambly, even though it is like this all-encompassing massive, you know, existential theme that he's taking on. It makes it seem somewhat incoherent. And again, this is not a knock on the movie because I like The Tree of Life a lot. But you can definitely see it moving from the new world to, you know, his Knight of Cups, Song to Song era, which are movies that I would say are not without merit, but I'm not as eager to ever revisit them. What do you think about To the Wonder? I still have to see it. I know people like that one a lot. And probably that's going to usher in, it seems like that's ushering in a new era for Terrence Malick. Because I know he's got this gospel movie he's been working on for a while, which sounds very interesting. Totally. No, I'm really looking forward to it. But the, no, To the Wonder was the one he did after Oh, Tree I'm Life. sorry. Yeah, the Ben Affleck one. I was thinking of uh, Hidden Life. Yeah, which I want to see too. Yeah, Hidden Life definitely seems like he's sort of transitioning back to something. Yeah, I'm really interested in this gospel movie he's making, you know, even for his failures, I love Malick still as an artist, and I'm interested in seeing anything that he's going to make. When I saw Tree of Life, I felt like there was a masterpiece buried within an overlong movie. Because everything that had to do with Brad Pitt and the boys in the 50s and Jessica Chastain, for the most part, I was captivated by. I thought, oh, this is Malick. I didn't know this about his brother, and you know, I didn't know this about his dad. And I thought that portrayal of Texas in the 50s or whatever it was, that organ scene where Brad Pitt's playing the organ and the son's playing the guitar. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah. It was one that was beautiful. But then there was like stars exploding. Then there was like dinosaurs and there were fish. And <laughs> I, I was one of those weird things. 
things were as, and there was the whole Sean Penn where you're like, oh, Sean Penn is meant to be Malik now, but we don't even need that. The story is really about the brothers and the dad. The Sean Penn stuff, I think, is the superfluous sort of self-indulgent stuff that the movie doesn't necessarily need. But I guess to counterpoint what you said, I didn't mind the space and dinosaur stuff. Maybe it's just because it reminded me of 2001, which is my favorite thing ever. I love the idea of Malik doing a 2001 homage, but... I think it's relevant to the kind of topics the movie is taking on, the birth of the universe, the tree of life, and how like we've evolved, how species have evolved, how sentience has evolved, the uh, parallels and contrasts of where we're where from where we are. It's interesting to me. It's not a wholly successful endeavor that he undertook. I like that it's in the movie, but I do agree with you about the Sean Penn stuff. That stuff is a little less baked. And, and just in Sean Penn's defense, it's not because of Sean Penn. I mean, no, he, yeah, yeah. He, he like gives it his all. And I've heard this about autobiographical movies, too, that although I heard that Spielberg did a great job in The Fablemans, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping for that, but that often when filmmakers try to portray themselves, those characters often feel weirdly like ciphers because the filmmakers can't treat them as characters. They're too close to them. And I think you feel that way. Like Sean Penn is just meant to be upset and anguishing and kind of depressed and have a tough relationship with his dad, but you can tell that that part wasn't written, that there are no scenes for Sean Penn to really get into. But I think that Penn does the best with what, what he has. For me, I was trying to grab it at a, a transition that would not be the most obvious. And I guess I'll just jump to a director I love that we haven't talked tons about, but it'd be, you know, a huge director and that's uh, Fellini. I am a huge Fellini fan. I think his run from, talking about runs, his run from E. Vitaloni through Toby Dammit is almost mind-boggling. The only movie that most people don't know in that run is a movie starring Broderick Crawford about con men, which I want to say is called Il Bedone. I believe, like, The Swindlers. But it's still, Il Bedone is like his lost highway. It's a totally dark, dark, dark film. It doesn't have the Fellini redemption or the Fellini life-affirming. It's, like, pretty rough. And the ending is really rough. But it's a great movie. But I could see why people were like, Ugh. Yeah, I think he's sort of getting at something he didn't like about Italy in the 1950s. And he goes full for it. It's like Kurosawa's uh, Lower Depths to me, or uh, I Live in Fear. Still an amazing movie. Still somebody at the top of their game, but clearly kind of intense. But anyway, his transitional movie would probably be La Dolce Vita. And what's interesting about that is that if you look at his 50s run, every movie is building on the movie before it is another hit. Him and Bergman were just like every movie, everyone had to talk about it all around the world. So he's doing, you know, Eva Deloney, then he's doing La Strada. Then he's doing Knights of Cabiria. Il Bedone comes between La Strada and Knights of Cabiria. Uh, and he's doing some short films. But then, I think after Juliet of the Spirits, he had already won the Academy Award twice or been nominated. It was, it was like crazy where he was. It was like Bergman and like Kurosawa. They were just, they were all like just getting nominated all the time. And I think everyone was sort of, well, what's he going to do next? And he comes out with this movie, which weirdly, now that I think about it, I hadn't put it together, is sort of the child of Il Bedone and Il Vitalone. And so it's a very brutal movie. I mean, you know, it was, it may to this day be his biggest hit. I'm sure a lot of people know about it. I don't want to ramble and tell you stuff you know. Uh, La Dolce Vito follows this writer, journalist, played by Marcello Mastriani, who lives in Rome. And more and more and more, La Dolce Vita is the sweet life. To pay the bills, he writes about celebrities and actors and stars for some kind of magazine who frequent the Via Venuto, the sort of Rodeo drive of Rome. It's the movie that coins 
coined the term paparazzi, which a lot of people don't know. There's a character named Paparazzo who like takes photos all the time. Ultimately, Marcello, he doesn't realize that he's moving from being a legitimate artist and writer who's paying the bills to just being somebody who wants to party. And the movie ends with a very famous scandalous orgy sequence, but not the way you think. It's not like nudity and sex, but it just people getting drunk and riding each other and spanking each other and just really awful behavior and treating each other awfully and just sort of like being drunken hedonists. It has this incredible ending where he goes to a beach and there's a big fish and they're all looking at a big fish and there's this girl he knew when he was trying to write his novel and she tries to talk to him and he can't understand what she's saying. And what she's shouting at him is, did you ever finish your novel, I think. And I think everybody wanted him to make the next La Dolce Vita. He talked about this. He was like, after La Dolce Vita made buku money, every producer wanted me to make La Dolce Vita. They were like, make La Dolce Vita too. And I think he rightfully said, I can't, I can't chase that tiger. Like I did it. I wouldn't even know how to do it. You know, I gave it my all and that's where I was. But then he did what I think is one of the single greatest miracles in cinema. He made eight and a half. And to follow up La Dolce Vita with eight and a half is kind of like what I was saying when Coppola did Godfather 2 and followed it up with Apocalypse Now. How do you follow up a masterpiece with a masterpiece. But suffice it to say, he did. He does Eight and a Half, which is my favorite Fellini, one of my top tens, about a film director who can't make his next movie. And that kind of movie shouldn't work, but it does. It's amazing. And it's also about his marriage. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. One of the greatest movies ever made. Absolutely should be indulgent and narcissistic and not work at all. And I think for anybody in movie making, it's like one of their favorite movies. And then he made a movie that I want to show called Juliet of the Spirits, which is really for his wife, uh, Julietta Messina, which is about a woman who's in a bad marriage who sort of over a series of looking back at her life tries to understand where she is in middle age another masterpiece but that run that transitional film of La Dolce Vita is what gave us Eight and a Half and Juliet of the Spirits two of the greatest movies of the 60s and I just really encourage people to check that run out Culture and final thoughts. I found about uh, this game called Shotgun King. I think it's just for the PC. It's like chess, but with a gun. <laughs> it's a really cool, like, roguelike strategy game. If any of those words sound interesting to you, uh, it's pretty fun. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash NerdHala. Uh, my wife and I recently rewatched Elvis last night. It holds up. I was curious to see what it would be like uh, watching it at home because the first time we saw it was at the Westwood Village uh, on a beautiful screen with Dolby Atmos sound, which is exactly how you should experience a Baz Luhrmann film. But even watching it at home, great stuff. My favorite thing Baz Luhrmann has ever done. Austin Butler is transcendent in his performance as Elvis. It rules. No, I want to see it based on your recommendation. And I like Baz Luhrmann, but I haven't seen Gatsby or Elvis and I need to see them both. But I've heard Elvis is great. It's, you know, it's classic. It makes me kind of like his older stuff a little more because those had all been acquired tastes for me. But Elvis was something that I immediately took to. It helped me kind of be more of a Boz fan. I still need to see Strictly Ballroom. Has anyone seen that? It's the only one I haven't seen, yeah. It's supposed to be great, so I, I got to catch it out. I haven't seen Australia either. I don't know if anyone saw that one. Pretty good, pretty good. You know, not the strongest thing I've ever seen, but still worth watching, absolutely. I'm obsessed and fascinated with Australia, and I love Australian movies. I think because of the, the Outback specifically, and that whole just middle part of the country, and like the aboriginal concept of dream time is fascinating to me. And Boz Lerman is native Australian, is 
isn't he? Is he? Or not native, not Aboriginal, but like he's from Australia. Oh, he's a, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's Australian. So I, I talked about Monte Cristo last time. I'm also reading Ludwig von Wittgenstein, one of my favorite philosophers, to get mega pretentious so that somebody reaches through the pot and slaps me in, in my face. My two favorite philosophers are Spinoza and Wittgenstein. And I'm not really a philosophy guy. I don't want people to think. I've read some, and there's like stuff that really means a lot. But the only books I've ever picked up and read were by Spinoza, Spinoza's Ethics, Wittgenstein, his Tractatus and his Philosophical Investigations, and uh, Nietzsche, because someone gave me a book of Nietzsche's work when I was in my teens. While I respected a lot of what Nietzsche said, and I think there's a lot that's really important in there, I didn't go whole with him because of my spiritual bent. But um, Wittgenstein, if anybody ever reads the Tractatus, it's a very lean book where he really wants to clear up at least how I understand it, all of the messiness of how we communicate and how we view the world and even how we discuss philosophy and how he feels actually that most of our discussions about topics, they're not right or wrong, but they're senseless because there's no real basis for us to talk about them because we're using language wrong. And because we're not using language precisely, we're having senseless conversations. And the famous thing at the end of the Tractatus is he has seven sort of rule, not rules, but seven, I guess, uh, assertions he comes to about how philosophy works. The seventh assertion, which is one of my favorite things I ever read, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically that of which cannot be spoken, one must pass over in silence. And it's very profound, no matter where you're from, that there are some things that exist beyond the world of language. I'm reading that and there were some things in there that I love. Like he was talking about the probability. This was fascinating to me. He was saying that probability is a human-made construct that has no basis in reality. And he was saying that a thing happens or it does not happen. That is how reality happens. And just because something has happened in the past is never a guarantee that it will happen again in the future. And he says we all have to be very careful about how we construct because the human mind wants to construct that, oh, the probability that this will occur, that history will repeat itself. He's like, yes, I get why we do that. But in fact, the past is no guarantee of what will happen in the future. Something completely unexpected could happen. And I found that very scary and very liberating. And I was like, it felt true to me. I was like, oh, that's a guy who really has thought this through. You know, what happens tomorrow could have no basis in any experience that we have in from today. You know, who knows? These gaseous aliens could land and envelop us in a purple cloud, and we all suddenly could find ourselves in a transcendent plane a billion years from, you know, light years from now and being like, oh, didn't see that coming. Who, who knows? And then last thing I'll just say, did any of you guys see the spaceship crash into the asteroid? Oh, I saw the images that it took. Yeah, I, I'm obsessed with space and NASA. Everyone should get on NASA's feed stat. So uh, NASA created this ship to basically Armageddon deep impact, like try to hit asteroids so that if an asteroid ever is coming at us, we can move its trajectory millions of miles out so it'll miss us. They did all of this stuff that brilliant people do. And yesterday they watched and this little ship connected with this little asteroid 8 million miles from us and it made impact and they had images these images as it hit they moved the trajectory of the asteroid by just a little bit and that asteroid is like rotating around another big asteroid and supposedly over the next year now they're going to follow that asteroid from what its trajectory should have been to what its rotation will be now and if they notice the mathematical difference they will have proven that we can move asteroids slightly off their trajectories Michael Bay was ahead of his time. <laughs>
Yeah, but he didn't send oil riggers up there. <laughs> Have you ever heard Ben Affleck's commentary on Armageddon? Yeah. Yeah, someone yeah. sent that to me. Did, is that where I saw it? Did one, Did you send it via Slack? I think I brought it up on a really early episode when we talked about Armageddon, because we talked about Armageddon like our first year of the podcast, but somebody posted it recently in the Slack, yeah. One of you guys posted the Armageddon, maybe Josh Salisbury. I think it was, Josh. There you go. All right. Well, there you go, guys. Yet again, another podcast in the books. Thank you, Alex Olivier. You should just be on here way more. Alex is a man. Yeah, I'd love to. You're a guy who you don't try to please people. You know what you like and you know what you don't like, but you do it so considerately and yet so... I don't know what the word would be, but you 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 know what you like and you voice it in in the best possible way. You're like, I didn't like that movie. I like that movie, but you're always very approachable in a conversation, and uh, it's always a, a delight to talk to you. So, oh, thank you for saying so. I, I don't think that's something that I could have always said when I was younger. So I'm happy that <laughs> I'm happy that I can say it now. <laughs> As always, this episode was edited by uh, our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Next week's podcast, Secret Movie Club Podcast 122, is going to be a bit of a unique one special one, although I hope they're all special. I'm going to be doing a one-on-one conversation with secret movie clubber Matthew Gentile, who just wrote and directed his first feature film, American Murderer, which comes out October 21st, which is when the podcast will come out. And then a week later, uh, we'll be on digital and on demand. And I want to be very clear that we're not getting paid. This isn't a publicity thing or anything like that. I actually talk to Matt a lot after movies. Matt's one of those guys who will stay after a movie and just want to talk about what he thought and what he felt. And as we talked, he let me know that he was deep in editing his first feature film. Matt actually graduated the American Film Institute. I wanted him on the podcast because the whole mission of Secret Movie Club is to be a growing community of movie makers and movie lovers. And I feel that the two should, I mean, not always, and I shouldn't even say should, but I think it's often good if the two go hand in hand. It's like Stephen King. He loves reading novels and he loves writing novels. And I thought this was an opportunity to talk to someone in our community who got it done and not just... You, you know, anybody who makes a feature film is a hero, period. I don't care if it's good, bad, and different. But I've actually seen American Murderer, of course, for the interview. And it's a good movie. And not only that, it's got an incredibly stacked cast. Tom Pelfrey from Ozark, Jackie Weaver from Animal Kingdom, Medina Menzel from Uncut Gems and Broadway fame, Paul Schneider, among many others. It's a true crime story about a con man who, as the title lets you know, slides eventually into desperation and murder, who was on the FBI's most wanted list for a long time. And I don't want to give away why that is, but the movie in a really fun, nonlinear way covers this true crime event and this fascinating character. And what I loved about the movie is that what he does is pretty awful. uh, And you'll have to see it in many ways and not just the murder part of it. And yet he doesn't feel like a psychopath, sociopath almost certainly, but not a psychopath. And so the movie does a really good job. And Matt does a really good job of showing how I think people can slide into horrible decisions. Join us for that. And uh, we are going to get into how Matt wrote the movie, uh, what it was like in the development process, what it was like shooting the movie, what it was like editing the movie. He tells some pretty great stories. And I think if you're a movie maker or working to make your first feature, at least my hope is, and I I think Matt did a great job of this, you'll actually hear from somebody who just did it in this atmosphere. He shot the movie during COVID, the whole thing. As always, you can find out about what we're doing at Eventbrite. Get tickets there. You can go to secretmovieclub.com. Tonight, 
we are going to be doing Richard Pryor at the Million Dollar Theater, his comedy concert film, Live on the Sunset Strip, which my favorite thing is about how he tried to rob the mafia store owners of his first like stand-up gig with a starter pistol. And then uh, his whole bit on that, which I guess really happened to him. They were like, this guy, uh, Rich, uh, Rich, you're funny. The other day, I, you know, I had to kill a guy with an ice pick. You know, you know how you do that? You take that, you go boom, 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 like that real quick. Come for that. Jennifer Pryor will be talking to us about Richard Pryor. We'll have hopefully a panel of comedians. Saturday, join us. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Frankenstein, James Wells, Frankenstein on 35, Mike Mignola. Then come for Vampire Hunter D, double feature at the Secret Movie Club Theater. Wednesday will be uh, improv with The Resistance and live dubbing of uh, Patrick Still Lives. And Thursday will be Lars Von Trier's The House That Jack Built. All right. Uh, that is it. Guys, have a great week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wishes. Love you, family. And uh, curse words, which Edwin was really bad on last episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he was he was rusty. I think I was about to say he was like a reservoir, a dam about to burst. <laughs> <laughs> we we felt some of that when he visited the set. Oh yeah, we we didn't even tell that story. He he visited us when we were shooting underneath the Sixth Street Bridge, one of our very few exteriors away from our single location. I did three takes of one shot, and he said, "Oh." Kubrick right here. <laughs> <laughs>